Good morning, Mission View. It's good to be get together again for us to worship together. Uh, today marks the beginning of a six-week series that we're going to be doing called Family Life. Now, the big, big idea behind Family Life series is that our position in Christ will then reflect on our relationships with each other. What do I mean by that? As we understand who we are in Christ, as we understand that we're to die to ourselves and that we are to take on the character of Christ, it will then have an effect on our relationships. It has to. It affects how a husband loves his wife, how a wife loves her husband, and how parents love their kids and kids love their parents. It also extends into the body of Christ how we love one another. Our goal during the six weeks is for this to be a very practical series for you. So we want to give practical ideas of how husbands should love their wives, how wives should love their husbands, how kids should be honoring to their parents and parents coming alongside with their kids and how we should act with one another in the body of Christ. Now you say, well, why are we doing a series like this? The reason is that we want to have healthy families. Josh mentioned that we focused internally just for praying that we would be healthy. Now, I don't want you to think that the elders are thinking, man, we are at a really horrible, unhealthy place. No, it's good for us to focus in on just how are we doing within the body of Christ? How are we doing in our intimate relationship with the Lord and our intimacy with each other? And then when that happens, we can have a greater influence in the world. And so our goal is that we would just have that kind of influence. Now, over this past year, I don't know if you've recognized it, we even said at the beginning of the year that our desire is that we would grow healthy as a church. It was kind of a theme for the year. And as a result of that, we've had teaching throughout the year that's reflecting on this health within the church. So we've had 2 Corinthians where we've talked about working for God that was really about health, healthy work relationships with the, within the church. How we are to do spiritual warfare with one another. How we are to minister alongside of each other. Then we went to Nehemiah and we talked about being together and that's a healthy, healthy interaction as a team. And so we're going to talk about healthy families next in this family life series. And then right after that, we're going to be doing a series in Philippians. And in Philippians, we're going to be focusing on just vital signs of healthy habits within the church. Why do we want to be healthy? Because if we're healthy as, a, as families, we're going to be healthy as a church, and that's going to be a great place for those outside that might not have health spiritually, for them to come and for them to be absorbed and encouraged and come into that healthy environment. That's what we desire to see happen. Now this morning, I have an honor to introduce uh, the person who's going to be sharing, kicking off this series. It's going to be Pastor Butch from Maranatha. Pastor Butch has been a longtime mentor. We have moved in our relationship because I think it was close to 20 years ago he wanted to fire me. And so we've moved in very healthy way in our relationship to, I don't think he wants to fire me. He wanted to get rid of me eventually, but no, I'm just kidding. We have a, a great mentor relationship. I meet, ever since we got launched, I have met almost every single month with Pastor Butch. He's been my counselor. He's been my encourager. And 
anytime I have a difficult situation in the church, believe me, I'm sharing things with him to, to ha get his wisdom and insight. And so I'm encouraged that he is here today to kick off the Family Life series. If you're newer to Mission View, Maranatha Bible Church was our sending ministry. Uh, believe it or not, this September, it'll be, it'll, it will be four years. And so they have loved us, encouraged us, and come alongside of us. So, Pastor Butch, if you'd come up, I'd like to pray for you. And if you'd open, the, open up God's word uh, with us. Let's, uh, let's pray for the message. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for Butch. I thank you for the love of our sending ministry. And I thank you, Father, for um, just the opportunity we have to be encouraged by your word being opened this morning. I thank you, Father, that uh, there is leadership at Maranatha that truly cares about this world. Um, it's been reflected in the five churches that they've planted. It reflects now, even now, as they continue to love and encourage and support us as a church plant. And we're grateful for that, Lord. And so I pray for Butch. I pray that you come alongside of him and use his words to speak to our hearts this morning. And I just pray that in your name. Lord, I also want to lift up um, just a need. Uh, Julie Cash mentioned to me this morning, a friend of hers that got in a car accident. Uh, Lord, I just pray that you would come alongside of that lady, that young lady, and I pray that you would be her encouragement and heal her body. And so I just pray for that request right now. Lord, thank you for this time. In Christ's name, amen. Well, it's good to be with you once again. It's been a while since I've been here. I've been visiting with some old friends, and yes, you are getting older, and so am I, and I've met some new people here, which is great because that's what should be happening within the body of Christ. We continue to expand. We continue to reach out. Healthy things do grow, and healthy churches will grow. God determines the pace. God determines how big we will get. Uh, some people, God, in some churches, God has chosen to just give them great growth. Suddenly, other churches, it comes along slowly. But God is the one who gives the growth, and he's the one that we've come here to worship and celebrate today. And we're going to be talking about healthy families this morning. And when I say the word family, I'm talking about the family of God. I'm talking about this body of believers. But in order for us to be healthy as a body, it requires that the individuals within the body be healthy. So take your Bibles with me, or your phones, electronic device, whatever you happen to be using, and go to Colossians chapter 3. I never thought the day would come that I would encourage people to take out their phones during a service. Uh, but I find more and more that's what people are using as their copy of the Scriptures. I just encourage you to have a copy of the Scriptures in front of you. In Colossians chapter 3, we're coming to the practical part of the book of Colossians. See, when the Apostle Paul wrote his letters, he follows a pattern. In the first part of his letters, he always deals with doctrinal issues. But then he moves from the doctrinal into the practical, 
We always need to take the truths we know and put them into operation within our lives. It's not about how much you know. The scriptures tell us that knowledge puffs up. It's about what you are putting into practice that you already know. I will tell people at, at Maranatha, I don't care how much you know. What I care about is, are you living out what you know? We all know individuals who have a lot of knowledge. And when I say that, there's someone coming to mind for you right now. You can see their picture. Actually, the scriptures refer to those individuals as fools. They have all kinds of head knowledge, but they don't put any of it into practice within their lives. So here in Colossians chapter 3, Paul is going to talk to those that he's writing to, and he is going to give them 12 different things. That's why I thank Steve for this passage. You know, this week, the longest passage of anyone that gets to preach in this series. And as I'm going through it, I'm finding command after command after command after command. Paul just gives imperative after imperative after imperative. And actually, we're going to find 12 imperatives in this passage. Now, one of them is repeated, so I got to bring the outline down to 11 different points as we look at this morning. But this is so different from what occurred with the pagans in Paul's day. See, they would go worship their idols, and then after worshiping their idols, they would just go out and live any way that they wanted to live. You know, we see the same thing today with people who are religious, you know, they may faithfully go to church every Sunday, but they go, they go through the ritual, and then they go out into the world, and they live any way that they want to live. Not so with Christ followers. We are commanded to put into practice that which we believe. So follow with me, beginning with verse 1 of Colossians chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ. Actually, the word that's translated if can be translated one of two ways. It can be translated by the word if, as the NI, which the, which the ESV that I'm using to preach from. Steve, is this the version that you guys are using? Okay. I missed the NIV. I wish they had kept it updated but they did not. They made changes that were unacceptable to us as a church. So we've been using the ESV translation of the Bible. But the word if, it can be translated either if or it can be translated since. In this case, it should be translated since. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Paul is not questioning whether these people are believers or not. In chapter 1, in verse 2, he called them saints, faithful brothers. If you look at chapter 2, verse 6, he says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord. So he's not questioning whether or not they are believers. He is saying to them, since you are believers, since you have been raised 
with Christ, number one, seek the things that are above. Seek after heavenly things. What are you living your life for today? What's most important to you? What are you seeking for? Is it your career? Is it money? Is it fame? What is it that you want more than anything else? What are you seeking after? As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we should be seeking the things that are of heaven. We should be seeking things above. Because he tells us that's where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. See, as Christians, the word Christian means little Christ. As little Christ, we should be seeking to follow Jesus. Jesus is seated at his Father's right hand. His work has been completed. We are to seek after him. And Paul goes on in verse 2 and says, Set your mind on things that are above. Number two, set your mind on heavenly things. It's one thing to seek after something. It's another thing to have your mind set on heavenly things. You know, some of you have heard the comment in the past regarding individuals. He is so heavenly-minded that he's no earthly good. Well, that's typically not the problem. Our problem is typically we are so earthly-minded that we are of no heavenly good. It is natural force. It flows out of us because of our sin nature that was passed on to us through Adam for us to naturally do that which is sinful. So we have to set our minds on heavenly things. What types of things are we to be thinking about? Philippians 4.8, Paul says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, what's he say then? Think, say it with me. Think about these things. Is that what you find your mind set upon throughout the week? Does that just naturally come to us? I don't know about you, but for me, that's not naturally the types of things that I think about. What am I thinking about? I'm naturally thinking about, are the Cavs going to win this afternoon? Are they going to put Indiana away? Are they going to play as bad as they played in the first half the other night? You know, what are they going to do? How about the Indians? What are they going to do? Uh, uh, where am I going to go on vacation this summer? Uh, what I'm thinking about all kinds of different things, but I'm not naturally thinking about the things of God. That takes the Spirit of God empowering us and us surrendering ourselves to be filled with the Spirit so that we are thinking about the right things. We need to set our minds on heavenly things. And notice what he says here about that in verse 3. For you have died. See, we don't set our things on our minds on earthly things, but on heavenly things, because we have died 
and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life. Notice what Paul's saying there. You've died. Your life is hidden with Christ. Christ is your life. That's why Paul can say in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's why Paul would say in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. That's why we set our minds on things that are heavenly. Third command we find in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. This is an action. Put to death is very strong language. It's a word that means not to simply suppress or to control evil acts or attitudes. It means to wipe them out completely, to eliminate them. A few years ago, Barb and I moved into the house that we're in right now. And in the spring, the first spring that we were in the house, I have an office that's in the house. It was invaded by ants. And I don't mean just a few ants. There were so many ants, we didn't think people would believe us when we said there were thousands of ants. There were thousands of ants that were there. And I got the spray can, and I sprayed them, and I would sweep them up, and I would come the next day, and there would be, the floor would be black. There were so many of them moving uh, around. I couldn't believe how many ants were there. So we didn't want to manage the ants. Just keep them in the office and don't let them spread throughout the rest of the house. What did we want to do? We had to take radical uh, action here. We need to get rid of these ants. So we called the exterminator. Out they came. They sprayed. They said, well, when you messed up, messed around with the landscaping in the front, you must have hit a nest of ants. And so now they've decided your home's going to be their home. And we decided, particularly my wife, she wasn't sharing her house with ants. And so we, we would kill them, we would sweep them up. The exterminator had to come out three times within two weeks before we finally got rid of the ants. See, the world tells us to manage things. Christ tells us these things have to be put to death. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. He says, put to death earthly things. And then notice what he talks about when he tells us that we are to put to death the earthly things. He says, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul will use five different terms, and notice they all have to do with sexual sin. He uses the word sexual immorality. The word that's used there is the Greek word pornea. It refers to any type of sexual activity 
outside the boundaries of a monogamous marriage relationship. Any type of sexual activity outside of that is covered by the word pornea. And we are, we are not to have sexual immorality. He uses the word passion. That means a mind that is filled with sexual thoughts. He uses impurity. That means lust, impulsive actions, immorality. He uses a word for evil desires, and that means to, to desire a behavior that is wrong. And then he talks about covetousness, meaning wanting more, wanting that which is not yours. Now, it's interesting to me that when Paul, first of all, talks to them about putting to death what is earthly in you, that the first place he goes is to sexual misbehavior. In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 18 to 20, Paul says this, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price so glorify God in your body. See, we are to put to death these earthly things to make them dead. Now, it may surprise you, but Paul will talk about sexual sins more than any other sin. In his writings, whenever he's talking about sin... He talks more about sexual sins than any other sin. And why is that? Because sexual sin was and is everywhere. You know, sometimes we think that things are different for us today than it was for these early Christians. We think, you know, we live in a society that is obsessed with sex. There is sexual temptation everywhere. And never before has there been a time in which people can engage in their sexual sins in such secrecy because of the internet. But sexual sin was a major problem in Paul's day. Matter of fact, with most of the false religions, sexual acts were a part of worshiping those false gods. And if you were to go into the pagan cities in the first century, you would find prostitutes, male and female, almost on every street corner in those cities. So this is not a new problem. Paul deals with this issue because sexual sin was, and it is, everywhere. And people battle more with this sin than with any other sins. Men, if we're honest here this morning with ourselves, how many times a day do you think about sinning by stealing? How many times during the day do you think about sinning by lying? 
How many times a day do you think about sinning by uh, spreading false rumors about someone? Now, compare that number with the number, number of times during a day you may be tempted with sexual sin. That's why Paul gives such attention to it. And he also knows that sexual sin destroys people. See, Satan comes along and lies to us. It's harmless. No one will know. It's no big problem. But sexual sin destroys people. It destroyed part of David's life when he sinned with Bathsheba. It destroyed the life of Solomon. And there are countless ministers today whose lives are being destroyed. And countless men of God in our churches whose testimony is being destroyed because of sexual sin. That's why Paul gives such attention to us. And he says, put it to death. You can't manage it. Put it to death. Paul goes on in verse 8, and you're going to see he's very practical again. But now you must put them all away. And now he's going to venture into another group of sins. But we are to put away everything that is anger-related. Put them all away. Notice he says anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. Now the word that Paul uses here for putting them away is a, a different word. And the word that he uses is a word that's used of a person taking off, whoops, I'm going to mess up my microphone here. So I'll do, I probably already did. Are we good? Okay. I won't take my jacket off to illustrate. <laughs> but that's the word that he's using. It's to take off an outer garment. It's to take it off as something that is old that you would want to throw away and to put on a new garment. Put away everything that is anger-related. I don't know how many different times... In my office, as I'm doing counseling, I find that things come down to the issue of someone is dealing with anger. They're trying to manage it. I don't believe in anger management. It's what the world sends people for. The scriptures tell us we are to get rid of all anger. And Paul will use six different words here that he's going to talk about that are related with anger. Uh, he uses a word that means anger, which means rage, which, which bursts out uncontrollably. You're going along fine, and then something happens, and boom, you explode. He uses the word malice which means an attitude of ill toward another person. 
you're harboring something against someone else. Oh, you hide it well, but deep down inside, the opportunity presents itself. You're going to get even. Wrath. It's a word that means anger or rage. He talks about slander. It means to hurt or to harm, to injure another individual. And then he'll talk about obscene talk. That's filthy words. Those are dirty words that flow out of a person's mouth when they become angry. Paul says, put away everything that is anger-related. Friends, for your own emotional health, for the health of your relationship with others, deal with the anger that is underneath the surface in your life. I've seen it destroy more marriages because a husband or wife is angry over something that happened years ago. And they've never dealt with it. I'll never forget meeting with a lady in our church who was in her 70s, who ultimately ended up in a mental institution. Why? Because she was angry over something that happened to her as a child. And she had a reason to be upset about it. She was raped by her three brothers who tied her up and raped her. And her family said, we can't talk about this. Her dad, who was a deacon in the church, said, don't you dare mention a word of this to anyone. So for years, she buried it and buried it and buried it. And then eventually, it erupted in her spirit. And she could no longer control it. We have to get rid of the anger that is within us. Get rid of it. And after talking about filthy talk, Paul just stays with the issue of the tongue, and he says to us uh, down in verse 9, do not lie to one another. Don't lie. Tell the truth. And then he goes on to explain why, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Because you've put the old self off and put the new self on, we speak the truth to one another. And you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of the Creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. We speak the truth to one another. Why? Because we're unified with one another. And speaking the truth brings about that unity. See, if we're refusing to talk about things, if we're refusing to deal with things... It causes us to be divided. Doesn't mean we're going to have uniformity, but we, God wants unity within the church. God wants unity within this body of believers. He wants you fellowshipping with one another and speaking the truth 
one to another. So do not lie. Instead, put on compassion. Verse 12. But put on then as God's chosen one, because you are chosen by him, because you are holy, because you are beloved, put on compassion. And Paul is going to give us a number of things that relate here to putting on this compassion. He's going to talk to us about putting on compassionate hearts. Actually, in the, in the Greek, it says put on the bowels of compassion. Now, the Greeks thought that the source of our emotions were our bowels. Now, we don't talk like that, do we? Uh, if I were to say, you know, hey, I love you from the depths of my bowels, you'd look at me as weird and crazy. Instead, we talk about from the heart. We use the heart as the seat of our emotions. Well, we are to have compassionate hearts, the deepest emotions. Paul goes on and says, he talks about kindness, that we are to be kind one to another. He talks about humility, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility. Now, the word humility doesn't mean weakness or a groveling. It doesn't mean that you become a, a doormat for others. He's going to talk about meekness as well. But it, it means that we don't think more highly of ourselves than we ought, that we're like Christ. We take on this attitude of being a humble servant. Doris Kearns Goodwin, who's a renowned historian, uh, an author, and uh, she's a student of presidents of the United States. She says of Abraham Lincoln that perhaps his greatest trait was his humility. She said that he possessed an uncanny ability to empathize with and think about other people's point of view. He repaired injured feelings that might have escalated into permanent hostility. He shared credit with ease. He res assumed responsibility for the failure of his subordinates. He constantly acknowledged his errors and learned from his mistakes. He refused to be provoked by petty grievances. He never submitted to jealousy or brooded over perceived slights. We're to put on humility. We're to put on meekness. That means that we are under control. And then Paul talks about as well that we are to put on patience. And the word that's used there means being lenient toward others, giving others the benefit of the doubt. And in verse 13, he goes on explaining this, saying, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. C.S. Lewis said concerning forgiveness, Everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. 
He also said to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in us. Augustine, the church father, said, if you are suffering from a bad man's injustice, forgive him, lest there be two bad men. We need to put on compassion. Two weeks ago, we're preaching through the book of Galatians, and I had preached a message, and there we were talking about forgiveness, and Paul says there, not only are we to forgive, but we are to bless those that we need to forgive. That week, a man walked into my office, and he said to me, Butch, would you quit this lousy preaching around here at the church? I can't stand any more of this lousy preaching. I said, well, uh, what do you mean? He says, I was with you when you said I needed to forgive those who wronged me. But when you said to bless them, are you kidding me? And I've had three separate families come to me and say that. But this man went on to say, he says, I have a neighbor. She is the worst neighbor in the world. Every morning she gets up, walks out to her mailbox, and gives me the finger. I said to her husband, is there anything I can do to make things right with her? And he said, no, she's just a miserable person. She's moved into the basement. We can't even stand each other. He said, but I come home from work then, and she's out in the garage trying to get her lawnmower started. And I'm really good at working on lawnmowers. And God spoke to me and said, you need to obey the message. Go bless her and start her lawnmower for her. I said, God, are you kidding me? He said, stop that lousy preaching. Look, we need to forgive. Because God has forgiven us of so much more than what anyone could ever do. He goes on in verse 14 and says, put on love, and above all this, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Put on love because it brings everything together in harmony. Mother Teresa said, the biggest disease today is not leprosy or cancer, It's the feeling of being uncared for or unwanted, of being deserted and alone. The greatest evil is the lack of love and charity. It's an indifference toward one's neighbor who may be the victim of poverty or disease or exploited and at the end of his life left at a roadside. Put on love. And as we've put on love, Paul goes on in verse 15 and says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you were indeed called in one body. You want to know what God's called you to do? Here's something God's called you to do. You are to let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. As Christians, we're to have peace. There's to be peace within our homes. So many marriages, so many homes are not a place of peace. I'm dealing with it all the time. Husbands and wives at one another's throats. 
That's not to be so among us as Christians. The, our homes are to be a place of peace. And that can only occur as each of us let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. Now the word used for rule here is the same word from which we get our idea of umpire or referee. What's the role of the umpire? He says whether it's fair or it's foul. He says whether it's a strike or it's a ball. He says whether you're safe or you're out. Let the peace of Christ umpire in your life. And then he says we're to be thankful. He says, and, end of verse 15, and be thankful. Actually, three times in this passage, he's going to talk about being thankful. He tells us, commands us at the end of verse 15 to be thankful. In verse 16 at the end, he says we're to have thankfulness in our hearts to God. And then at the end of verse 17, he says giving thanks to God. Let's quit focusing on what we don't have to be thankful for and to focus on all that we have to be thankful for. Give thanks. Focus on the positive, not on the negative. Be thankful. And then he tells us, let the Word of God dwell in you, verse 10. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, I could spend the whole message just on that, but I'm not going to preach another whole message here this morning. Instead, let God's, let God's Word dwell in you. See, that's the importance of us coming together, worshiping, singing. That's why words are so important that we sing because they are to be truthful. They, they are to cause us to admonish and to encourage one another. Psalms with the Word of God, we sing it. Hymns, doctrinal treatise about who God is. And spiritual songs, just songs of the Spirit that are our testimonies of what Christ has done in our lives. Let that dwell in you. Do you find that happening throughout the week? You know, I find myself as I'm driving in my car. That's the one place I can sing, and nobody is bothered by it. Uh, so I made sure with the sound guys this morning, I said, make sure I'm muted during the singing. A few years ago at Maranatha, our worship team was practicing, and I was there, and uh, well, actually it was during the service, at the end of the service, and when the service was over, one of our worship team members went to the leader and said, what was that God-awful sound coming through the monitor? He said, ah, they forgot to mute Butch's mic during the last song. But in the car, by myself, I can make a lovely sound to the Lord. You know, I'm wondering if in my redeemed body in heaven, if I'm going to be able to sing on tune there. That would be nice. And if I would get some rhythm as well, because I lack both. But we're to be singing as we let the Word of God dwell in us. And then notice what he says in verse, 11, in verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or do, deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do everything 
in Jesus' name. Earlier this year, I had the privilege of traveling to Thailand and then going on into China. Uh, as a, a church, we were sponsoring training for underground church leaders in China. And so Pastor Peters from our church and myself, we went into Thailand where we trained 120 church leaders that had come into Thailand from China, all underground church leaders. Following that, I traveled with Tom Thompson, who you'll see in the picture there uh, with me, and we went more into inner China, where I met with another 150 underground church leaders to do training with them. I was supposed to train them for two days. We had to cut the training short to one day. The location of where we were meeting had to be changed because the government was closing in. This was an unlawful assembly of believers meeting together to be trained. And so with one day's notice, they just let everybody know tomorrow we are meeting over at this other location. I was driven in, and when I finished teaching, they took me immediately to the car. Tom was put into another car. We went off in two different directions. They said it's like the old days, the way it was in China, that the government is cracking down more and more on the underground churches. The first individual I met in inland China is the person who you see on the screen. As we talked with him, he shared with us that he's been arrested and jailed ten separate times. One time he spent 140 days in jail after he had been beaten in the head. His crime living out the gospel. His crime, sharing with others about Jesus. See, these individuals that we met, and of the 150 that I trained in inland China, almost every single one of them had been in jail for their faith. Willing to go to jail to show Christ to others. And see, as you focus together, as a family of believers, on all that Christ wants you to be, when the church behaves like the church, the world will take notice. These individuals, though they have suffered much for Christ, Rejoice in Him. I brought back just a little video of the individuals there as they worshiped together before I got up to speak. And I want you to watch for the individual that you see in the picture. He'll be in the front row as they worship the Lord together. Watch this video.
their enthusiasm for the Lord. Their commitment that they were going to obey God in spite of persecution challenged me and caused me to ask, am I living the way that Christ wants me to live to bring glory to his name? We're a family together. And as each of us carry out what God wants us to be, we will set out to those around us a message of a Savior that He is the only one who can save and give us this type of joy. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help each of us to be all that we should be in you. Forgive us, Lord, for how many times we fail you. But thank you for your word that challenges us. And help us that we might be filled with the joy of Christ. And that we might let your word dwell in us to your glory. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.